Live bike racing is back, and Flow Bikes is your home for live and on-demand broadcast coverage of the biggest events of the year, including the Giro d'Italia, Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold Race, Tirreno Adriatico, and much, much more. Go behind the scenes with exclusive interviews, in-depth documentaries, and a host of other cycling-focused content. Additionally, our friends up in Canada get access to the Tour de France, Vuelta Espana, Criterium du Dauphiné, and UCI World Championships. Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That is F-L-O, bikes.com forward slash velonews. And when you purchase a Flow Bikes subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. So don't miss out. Sign up at flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That is F-L-O, bikes.com forward slash velonews. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from another busy Tuesday here at the Velo News home offices. Apologies in advance for doggies barking, babies crying, me tapping on the table. I think I've overcome the desire to tap on the table. That was an early hurdle of quarantine Fred uh, doing the podcast from my spare living room here in Lafayette, Colorado. Busy, busy week of racing. This past week with uh, Grand Piamonte Il Lombardia, Criterium du Dauphiné, all these bike races going on at the same time. Was I got to admit, it was fun. I watched a lot of bike racing. I indulged in watching racing on my phone and uh, laptop and had a good time with it. But um, as someone who covers the race, races, it was, it was a lot. And of course, it would not be Return to Bike Racing without um, controversy and so many storylines to cover because I don't know if you guys followed this but you know the Dauphiné there were all these crashes um, riders dropping out before the end Chris Froome not looking that great and then at Il Lombardia um, I mean just to you know look my enthusiasm for bike racing is returning you can tell is high but I gotta say Lombardia the crash of Remco Evenepoel on the descent of the Sormano was just really really troubling um, let me climb up onto my soapbox right here um I watched the race, saw the clip, and, you know, Remco is coming down the Sormano. He's off the back of the group a little bit, hits this brick wall, flies over it, and, oh, there's a 40-foot drop off of a bridge that he goes off of. So, you know, it's like, well, why aren't there pads there? Why isn't there a net? Why isn't there come some kind of safety footage? Then I saw some footage come out from different angles, people filming it on their iPhones afterwards, like crowd, you know, people and spectators and stuff, and it's like... The car, you know, the race officials, they're right behind him. They see him go over this drop. And, like, a guy gets out of the car, moves Remco's bike over to the side of the road, and they just speed off. And, like, no one gets out to say, oh, my gosh, you know, this person could be clinging to life. Like, awful things could have happened to this person. Let's just keep driving down the road. And, look, I know it's a twisting descent. It's in the middle of the race. People are flying down this road on bikes. But I don't know. That was one of those moments where I watched it from a couple different angles, and I was like, Oh, what the heck are we doing? You know, like really like what, you know, why don't we just stop everything when a kid like that, you know, when anyone goes over an embankment like that, I mean, thank God that uh, Evan Apool seems to be, I mean, he's very injured. He fractured his pelvis and injured himself, but thank God that it wasn't more serious. Cycling dodged a major bullet um, in that situation. Okay. Climbing down from the soapbox there. I'm off of it. Uh, we have a great podcast for you 
today, uh, linking up with James Start and Andrew Hood to talk about all the racing action at the Dauphiné and Lombardia and what it means heading into the Tour de France, some analysis of Froome, Ineos versus Jumbo Visma, all the big storylines coming out of the race. Uh, and then the second half of the show, our Tour de France previewing continues this week we are uh well this week and next week we are breaking down the top 10 contenders for the overall this week we're going uh, number 10 to number six and uh naming our contenders this is from the 2020 tour de france print tour de france guide who we had listed one through ten so we're going 10 to six breaking them down and offering our analysis and hottest takes um about them so again like we're marching forward full speed towards the tour de france so much going on at Vel News right now. Magazines getting published, plans getting laid for the race, um, and we hope to have you along for the ride. Also, we have a super fancy Tour de France um, homepage that we are going to be releasing here pretty soon with all the information that you need to follow the race. Rosters, team info, stages, and it's going to be all nice and tidy to help you follow along the race. So thanks Again, to everyone for listening to the podcast, following along on VelaNews.com. Okay, let's get to Andrew Hood and James Start. All right, joining me back on the line, Andrew Hood from Spain. James Start, coming to us from his home in Paris. James was at the Dauphiné all weekend. He had a front row seat for all of the craziness that went on in that race, the crashes, the GC changes, all of the storylines. First of all, James, give us a little sense of what it was like to be at the Dauphiné uh, with the COVID-19 restrictions, because these are probably going to be the rules that we end up seeing at the tour. What was it like to be at that race? Yeah, uh, I was pretty worried going into it because ASO is, you know, you know, just been so what's the word, restrictive, you know, about access, about, about even showing up there. And, uh, you know, we had to have a COVID test five days out. We had to get it approved by your doctor, this and that, yada, yada. Um, they're, you know, all they were doing was saying what you can't do. Um, and you can't do a lot. I mean, you could not get into the buses. You could not uh, have, you know, you could go up and chat to a rider. I'm, I'm accredited as a photographer. So that gives me certain access, but it, it, I don't have other accesses. So the journalists have access to the, uh, to the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the, uh, the mix zone. And I have access to the podium uh, where the guys come and sign in. One thing I found that they did do right uh, was that all of a sudden every day the teams had to show up together as a team. So what that did was, that uh, stopped what usually happens at a tour sign-in, whereas half the pack shows up 12 minutes before the race start and tries to sign in, and there's this big cluster. Um, so it was much more spread out, and that avoided having a lot of riders and a lot of people in the uh, protocol uh, area. But, you know, like, we all know each other, and several riders came up to me. And, you know, we're talking. We're trying to respect our distances. We're not looking at each other. We're kind of talking out in space, you know. We got reprimanded. Um, but you just can't control everything. And there, you know, there were still fans there. Um, so, uh, I think there'll be fans of the tour. Um, not tons, but you know, there definitely are, uh, fans, um, making their way there, make, waiting, walking, whatever it takes to, to be there. Um, does that mean it's busy business as usual? Absolutely not. Um, but, uh, and the whole mix zone area was, you know, crazy. It sort of depended who showed up. Uh, if you could get all the press off us or make sure you've got, you want, you got a rider you wanted. Um, but you know, it is what it is. I'm just going to have to suffer through this and hope that, uh, things uh, change for the better uh, next year. 
So you guys, we're going to get to our Tour de France uh, preview section here later in the show, but we got to talk about what happened at the Dauphiné and at uh, Il Lombardia this past weekend because we had crazy racing going on uh, in two different countries, a lot of crashes, a lot of storylines to follow. I mean, Hoodie, when you when you think about the top-line story coming out of this year's Dauphiné, Danny Martinez win, uh, Jumbo Visma looking untouchable until Primoz Roglic abandoned due to the crashes. Like, what are the big? What's the biggest storyline you think there is coming out of uh, Dauphiné? Yeah, it was it was a reminder of the old school cycling adage: you have to finish the race to win it. We saw all these guys crash out, and suddenly that changes the narrative uh, going into the last stage there with Danny Martinez pulling uh, kind of a trademark EF style victory. Uh, when they least expected it, they pull something out of their hat. Uh, chapeau to those guys for, you know, being uh, Danny Martinez. We look at where he was during the Dauphin. He was always just right there, you know, just a few placings behind. Uh, he was going in top five, going into that final stage. And then Roglic was out. And then suddenly he was right in the driver's seat for the race. And he wrote a fantastic final stage to, to win that. So a huge win for those guys. Um, but, the, you know, the big story, of course, was, uh, you know, Enios, not looking like the Enio Sky Machine of past and Jumbo Visma looking like the Enio Sky Machine of the future, perhaps. So that was the big talking point, just how, how dominant Jumbo was looking and almost all terrain and really how off the back of the pedal uh, Enios looked. I mean, uh, Garen Thomas and Greg, uh, excuse me, uh, Chris Froome, both rather kind of anonymous. Uh, you're seeing Bernal and Sivikov really kind of emerging as they're you know, looking like they have the best legs going into the tour for Ineos. So it kind of just makes things that much more complicated for the uh, Ineos tour selection. We have eight spots and they've got, you know, 10, 11 really strong riders there. You know, a lot of speculation that Froome might be flicked. And then uh, Jumbo looking like they've got everything in the toolbox to win the tour. All right, James, you were there. You were on the motorbike. You were looking at these guys when they were pedaling bikes and – going up hills and going down hills. I mean, was it really that bad for Chris Froome and uh, Ineos? It was definitely that bad for Chris Froome. Uh, I don't see him at the start of the tour. That's just my pick right now. I talked to Garen Thomas quickly. He said, you know, my numbers are good. Um, I hope, you know, I think that in the next uh, two weeks I can come around. But he said, you know, it was it was not uh, it was not easy peasy. You know, they were, uh, you know, it was hard coming in and it was such little amount of racing and he's gotten to you know ride into form but he's dropping his weight uh i don't know that he's a podium contender this year but he'll i think he'll be able to get up to speed but you know i was surprised to see somebody like bernal consistently outclassed by uh by roglic i mean bernal has been racing and i don't know that roglic had, had even had barely, he's barely raced at all um so i was surprised that they, that they there was such a consistent difference there um and but really what struck me was just the amount of sheer chaos at this race. I've never seen so many people pulling up with knee and back injuries and so many crashes, so many every day uh, somebody some major player was pulling out. I mean the last day Rogers doesn't Rogers doesn't start, uh Quintana drops out uh of a knee a knee injury and it's just you know, it's not stopping. I think it's just because everybody's hitting the ground running at such an intense pace. I mean there's there's no you know, like you know easy warm up races here. Everybody is just full gas, and that's creating a lot of tension, a lot of crashes, um, and a lot of surprises. Yeah, I linked up with American Ben King this morning, and he said a similar thing about being at uh, Tour Poland and then Lombardia, which is that people are fit. Like so, people are you know they they definitely did their training and they're fit, but they're missing a little bit of the 
pack dynamic that you get from racing week in and week out. But then the added level, the added layer on top of that is everyone seems to be really nervous because everyone's trying to make a tour team or a Giro team, and there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen next year or even the rest of the season. So everyone's like looking for an opportunity to show themselves. So the pressure's high, the tensions and the nerves are running really high. The legs are strong, but maybe the like this handling ability and the pack riding dynamics aren't quite yet that yet there yet. And then on top of it, you go and add some course sections that just really seem to boggle the mind. I mean, um, Roglic and Kreuzwick crashed on this stage four. There were some reports that the descent wasn't that great of one of these climbs, twisting, turning, a lot of gravel on the road. James, what can you tell us about what that descent actually looked like? Listen, uh, Roglic crashed, on, Roglic crashed uh, by, took himself out by all, by all means on a four-lane road that was perfectly well-paved. Uh, I was, I mean, it, it was... This, we've been waiting uh, after the descent to find a space where we could pass on the motos. This was a large road where we could safely pass. There was no reason to be crashing. It was just, I think, I'm, nobody really knows what happened, but it just looked like probably cross wheels or something, something classic like that. The descent was sketchy, yes, uh, absolutely. But I'm sorry, these guys are the best pros in the world. That's what they do. If you're gonna, if you're gonna take out every road that's sketchy in a bicycle race, then you might as well just uh, cancel Perry Roubaix. And Strade Bianchi, you know, that's what these guys are supposed to do. That's why you have team cars that are out there ahead. You know, you know that it, that they, they have, that's why you got race for you is to say, hey, this, this descent's really sketchy. Um, uh, same with Evanable. I mean, he crashed uh, on a road that is, is used on the Tour of Lombardia. Um, you know, it's, it's tragic. It was a tra- it was an amazing crash. It was tragic. But does that mean we have to take that road out of the race? Yeah, following up on the heels of what James said about uh, the Remco crash and that descent, uh, I think the, the issue, I think it was Gilbert had made a comment uh, yesterday or Sunday about these descents and these tricky kind of roads and sectors that people are complaining about. It's not so much that they can't race them, it's where they come in the race that makes them more dangerous. I mean, anybody can go down a uh, descent. I mean, these guys can, you know, ride anything. It's just that when it comes at, you know, towards an end of a, end of a race, or that Sormano descent where Remco crashed, you know, it kind of comes in that last 50K when the race really ramps up. So there has to be a balance there. I agree with James. You can't take out every kind of treacherous and narrow road in, in cycling because that would just eliminate some of the, the drama and the history and, and the skills required to race at the pro level. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's this whole larger debate about the safety of the races. I think it's a legitimate complaint from the riders that races are not safe enough. They need to do more for safety. And I think we've been lucky so far that we haven't had a crash uh, that has worse results for the riders. I mean, Remco got lucky. It sounds like he's banged up. Probably would miss the Giro. Um, you know, whose fault is that? It's probably the Giro organizers who lost their own, one of their top riders because they had this sketchy descent kind of at a, a key part of the race. You know, Shockman, a rider, a car getting onto the road, you know, that stuff should not happen. What happened uh, last week with uh, uh, Jacobson at the Tour of Poland, you know, the sketchy uh, barriers and just uh, shoddy conditions that we saw even the Tour of Wolony. Saw some photos on Twitter, just some horrendous road conditions and very narrow with some of this traffic furniture. There needs to be consistency. The UCI really needs to step up. Everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else. Oh, it's the organizers' fault. Oh, it's the UCI's fault. All the riders need to be more vocal and stand up for their rights. But if they don't really get serious about these safety issues, someone is going to end up in a very bad spot. I mean, you're going to take it that if you want to point fingers, you can say, hey, how about the bike industry who keeps making super stiff bikes? You know, um, 
that that also is out there. You you can point the fingers at a lot of things, but I mean that that descent in the Dauphiné was not, was not even at the midway point, um, and and they were not going all out. I was behind them. It was not it was a it was not a high high speed crash. And I think you know at that point in the, in the race, obviously uh, uh, you know numbers up and people the the teams can say hey take this descent easily. I mean the teams do do that. Um, there, there was not a point where they're all out racing. So I just I don't know man. These I mean. They have the road race. I mean, it's known. It's built its reputation on going for wide roads down to these little itty bitty laney roads. You know, I mean, at one point you just can't overthink it. Yeah, I could I see, that. I could see a scenario with that descent on the Sormano where, look, I mean, it's not like you know he crashed in the thick of the action and Nibali was pushing the pace and using his extreme descending skills to try and distance the rivals. I mean, it was strategic. It was like in the moment. So from that respect. I, you know, I, I see the value of having tricky descents like that, especially at that point in the race, because, hey, you're trying to figure out who was the best rider on that course. But I could also see a scenario in which you have that, you know, he crashed into a brick wall that was overlooking a cliff and like, man, just put some padding there and like, a, you know, uh, some type of net or I don't know, some type of raised barrier so that you don't have a scenario where someone flies off a cliff and falls 40 feet down. If you're if you're going to have a stretch of road like that in there, which, hey, I love it too. And before that happened, when I was watching, I was on the edge of my seat watching Nibali fly down, fly down the Sormano. And I was like, this is, you know, this is awesome. This is bike racing at its finest. Look at these guys, they're going. And then all of a sudden there was one fewer dude in the group and they, you know, they announced that Remco had crashed and it's just like, oh. So... I mean, maybe the situation is just that organizers need to identify sections like that and really boost up the safety stuff. But, you know, before we leave the Dauphiné and get on to Lombardia, I mean, what are the other big takeaways? I mean, this is the big warm-up race for the Tour de France. Five stages this year, hilly mountainous route, harbinger of things to come. And yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like the big storylines, if you are getting psyched to follow the Tour de France, is like Jumbo-Visma was the gorilla. Wout Van Aert is so strong right now. Team Ineos seems like a mess, or maybe they're playing possum. Um, and then you have these other contenders who, like Thibaut Pino, seem to be right there, but lacking a little something. Um, Nairo Quintana seemed to be right there, but maybe lacking a little something. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think of some of the other big storylines around the contenders heading into the Tour de France. Julian Alphalippe did not look that good. I think that what this is showing is that um, that everything is so much more unpredictable than we could have expected, you know, because because we're packing and all this racing at the end, people's form is all over the place. People are breaking down because, uh, because you know, they're getting injured, uh, stress injuries and back injuries because they're not used to all this intense racing. So suddenly I think uh, the big lesson is. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I agree that that Jumbo looks like a new Ineos, but even though even they could not win the race, yeah. you know, I mean, it was there and then they lost it. And. So it makes for amazingly unpredictable racing, which is the racing I kind of like. I mean, that last day, the day before, Marinol drops out. The morning of the start, Primo's drops out. And all of a sudden, there's no early morning, uh, easy television time break. The break, when, that, when they got that first climb 35K into it, was all of the big hitters going for it. It was just like, okay, this is, this is all-out bicycle racing. It was great, great racing. And I hadn't seen a day like that since... Uh, maybe like uh, 2013, the tour that day that actually uh, Garmin took it to, to Sky and, you know, and and the whole Sky team blew up and, and, and all of a sudden Froome's yellow jersey, it was in the Pyrenees, I believe, 
was 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 you know he was totally isolated with like 100k to go um and that was the sort of racing we looked at and that's what they did essentially to you know to pino he had the race one but he had to be able to follow the right wheels now pino did not have his his full-on tour team he only had really one guy to help him in the mountains which was not enough but then he just came up a bit short but everything is so unpredictable right now and there are no givens and i think that's the biggest takeaway and that is a good news for france yeah, I totally agree, James. Completely unpredictable going into this Tour de France. And uh, my thought is just, you know, how kind of crazy and cool this compact racing schedule is. I mean, we've got the Tour de France starting in less than two weeks. We've already had the Dauphiné. We've had the Spring Classics, Strada Bianchi, San Remo, Lombardia, all these crazy races all packed in. And I know it's been this long discussion about uh, the traditional racing calendar, how long it is. Maybe it's too long. And some people have kind of always floated the idea it needs to be more compact and kind of uh, modernize the calendar. And I've always kind of been in this old school, traditional corner saying, no, I you know, like the way the season unfolds. You got the classics, the Giro, the Tour, you know, blah, blah, blah. But this is kind of cool, man. Watching Remco, you know, hopefully he's okay, but watching Remco do what he's done at these races at the Tour of Polonia, what he did the other day, you know, watching Strade Bianca the week before that, uh, you know, watching the Dauphiné, uh, you know, there's something to be said about maybe spicing things up with uh, some of these uh, old ways of doing things. <laughs> well, what's really cool is that, uh, you know, Strade Bianca, like, for example, we don't have to wait another year to see it. We can, we can see it again in five or six months. Yeah. I like that. Coming but right I, up. I, I, I happen to prefer the, 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 the rhythm of the old. As someone who covers it, I prefer it to not having four months of uh, writing about Everesting followed by all the races being held on the same day and having to work like 13 hours and having my wife and child scowl at me. Um, Froome, so he gets dropped stage one. He gets dropped all the stages. You know, to me, the real alarm bell was stage one when, you know, he's tailed off on this uphill finish. There's still like classics guys in there and some lighter sprinters and he's just pulling the pin. Then stage two, the big summit finish to the Col de Port. You would normally look at this and say, okay, well, at the very least, he's going to take a pull on the front. He's going to get an effort in, and he gets dropped while Kwiatkowski is pulling. His teammate is pulling. He can't hold the pace. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought that the rumors and the scuttlebutt of, oh, well, hey, maybe Tim Unios won't take Froome to the Tour was all a bunch of crap and it was just to get the conversation started or it was Brailford trying to like play head games with him. But this really does look like Froome is not in Tour de France shape, which is to me, it's, it's a little sad. I'm kind of bummed by it because I was looking forward to following him at the tour. Um, and it also just pens a bizarre new chapter into his career as a racer which is you know he had this awful crash he came back he was very confident he seemed to be very confident and it's just like it's just not there and, and will it ever be there hey not not everybody can do a miracle comeback you know i i you know i he's i i do not see him doing the tour of france i do not see this being a fake and i do not see uh you know everybody always does a, you know there's always a jump in form between the dauphine and the tour but the, the this the dauphine and the tour are much closer together here than they usually are, and he's got much further to jump. I don't see it happening. Maybe he'll, however, he'll he'll do the Giro, the Giro, where with all those TTs, he could have actually a better chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think we're just seeing, you know, Froome not having the volume of racing in his legs coming off that uh, 
crash, that Hobart crash 2019. You know, so he hasn't even raced or completed a Grand Tour since 2018 when he won the Giro and finished second in the Tour. So it's been a long time. I think it's kind of maybe what we're seeing here. The numbers don't lie. I mean, those guys at Ineos are, are you know, going through crunching the numbers of all the riders. And, uh, you know, you can't hide it on the, on the race. And uh, maybe they're training this week and if Froome can pull some great numbers out, but I, I, I kind of agree. I think that the, it's written in the wall there for Froome and, and uh, the, uh, you know, it's probably, maybe the best thing for him is to go to the, uh, the Giro and uh, try to win another grand tour and, and just get a grand tour in his legs going into 2021 when he moves to Israel. Yeah, I think, uh, and Hey, the Giro needs a few good riders, huh? Yeah. Especially with Remco going away. Okay. That's it on the Dauphiné. Great race. Go watch the uh, replays on NBC Sports Gold. Um, thrilling racing. Watching Wout Van Aert win that stage was very interesting, too. Onto Lombardia. Um, thrilling race as well. Jakob Fuglzang wins his second monument. Uh, just, I thought it was a very compelling race. In talking to Ben King, he said it was extremely hot. This is yet another Italian race where the conditions really impacted people because of how sweat, hot and sweaty it is normally. It is the end of the season now. It is in August and riding around on those climbs with the thick air in Italy. Um, not that fun. I was really psyched to see George Bennett looking so strong this week. He won Grand Piemonte earlier in the week, showed he had good legs, and he's right there at the finale to go head-to-head with Fuglzong and just didn't quite have it for Fuglzong's last punch. But, you know, Bennett's a guy we followed for a long time. He trains and lives part of the year in Boulder, won the Tour of California. Funny guy. Uh, that was one of those where I, I could not hide my fandom. I was cheering for George Bennett on that final climb. Yeah, it was interesting that he said that he has, I think he said he has two days this entire year where he could race for himself in Piemonte. And probably Lombardia were those two days, and, and he came out uh, guns blazing because he is now going to be slotted into that very powerful Jumbo Visma train, uh, you know. And so with Bennett, uh, you know, with Dumoulin, Kweiswick is kind of a question mark now, but you know that team just looks unstoppable going into the tour. Yeah, how about Seth? I mean, geez, I mean, he has taken, he has made such a big jump. He is the next great American rider for sure. Yeah, you know, it was a couple years ago. I mean, I've been following Sepp's career for a while, and he's always been very strong and always been a very good climber. And then, you know, he moved from Rally to Yumbo, and he didn't have a great first half of the year and was doing okay, and then showed up at Tour of Utah and just won Utah by a mile. And he was doing things on those big, long, high-altitude climbs at Utah that we've never seen anybody do there. And that was sort of a moment where it was like, whoa, like... You know, that's world-beating form you seem to have there. And yeah, like James said, we saw it at the Dauphiné. I mean, winning the final stage, dropping a cast of hitters on that. He dropped Patate Pogacar. He dropped Danny Martinez. I mean, everybody. dropped everybody and, and had that typical Sepkus poker face on where he's like smiling. He's sprinting away from everybody, just looking great. What was impressive here is, I don't know, this guy's won a stage in the Vuelta. That's a very different stage when, you know, the Welta has a big early morning break every day. He jumped into that. He was the one who resisted the, the favorites the most. Here, this was guns blazing from the get-go with all of the favorites. He was always there. The team was really riding for him. He had, you know, he had guys like Dumoulin riding for him. Um, so they have confidence in him. And he confirmed it. Uh, and, you know, he won a day. This was just a mano a mano all across the board. So that was, for me, a... A huge, huge uh, move up. 
And any anybody looking for a new uh, to hire a new team leader should look at Seth. What does this win mean for uh, at Lombardia for Fuglesang? You know, for the last few years, the last decade, really, we've always thought of him as a Grand Tour. He's like the Grand Tour guy who's never been able to put together a, grand, a good Grand Tour. You know, he's like great time trialist, can climb maybe the steepest stuff he struggles on, but he's got the big engine, but then always crashes or has that one bad day. And now within 12 months, he's won two big monuments. I wonder... If this, I mean, does this win reframe his career? Do we start thinking of him more as like a monuments guy, a week-long guy? Um, how does this win change your perspective on Fuglesang? It doesn't. He's, he's been doing all these things all along. He's won twice won the Dauphiné, week-long stage races. Um, he's won, you know, he's in, this is a second monument. So uh, that, I think, you know, I, I don't think he's a grand to a rider. I don't think he's, you know, he could maybe be on the podium in the Giro. I mean, this is a very special Giro, but, you know, going to the tour last year, he was stronger than ever. And then he was at the height of his form. People are saying, watch out for Fuglesang, watch out for it. Well, even his team DS was going, you know, Fuglesang is, is flying, but that means like top five. I don't think he's a grand tour three-week uh, real contender. Mm. Unless maybe it's a Vuelta or a, uh, or a Giro under special conditions and circumstances. But he's a great all-around rider, a very complete rider. Uh, but great for one day, is great for... One day, one week races, but I don't see him as a major, uh, you know, tour contender. Yeah, I mean, he's mul he's multifaceted. I think uh, he's always kind of uh, underwhelmed at the Tour de France. Uh, I think that uh, you know, uh, for a situation like Fuglesang, it's it's good to see him unshackled in these one day races to really just kind of show his uh, his class. And I think that of the of the Grand Tours, the Giro is probably the one that's best suited for him because, especially over the last few years, they have been throwing in these longer time trials, which gives him kind of a little edge against the little flighty uh, climbers. I think the Welta is just too explosive, and uh, for him, too steep. Some of those climbs are just crazy steep. And the Tour is the Tour, and I don't think he. Yeah, I agree with James. He's my top five guy on his best at the Tour, uh, but I think he could win the Giro this year. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I really like uh, Jakob. I've known him for years. He's a He's a really class guy, uh, modest, uh, not a big talker, but always got a nice smile and a, and a heck of a white person. Um, and I, I'm actually really excited about the Giro this year. I want to be there, <clears throat> as you guys know. Um, and it's a beautiful race. I think it's going to be uh, very different from the Tour. And it's going to be a very open race. And you got right now, you got Nibali, and then I'm not sure who else. You know, why, yeah, why not Fuglesang? you got to be able to time trial, that's for sure. All right, all eyes on Jakob Fuglesang. I, I have followed his career for a while, too. I was at the... U23 Mountain Bike World Championships when he chased down Nino Schurter and won. I was actually at the Cape Epic with him that year. Got to know him when he was back, a U23 Mountain Biker. So it's been good to follow his career. So onward, Jakob Fuglesang. You heard me talk about it at the top of the show. Live bike racing is back and Flow Bikes is your home for the biggest events of the year. Get unprecedented access to live coverage of the Giro d'Italia, Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold Race, and much, much more. Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com forward slash VeloNews. Additionally, Canadians, our friends up north, get access to the Tour de France, Vuelta España, Criterium du Dauphiné, and UCN World Championships. Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com forward slash VeloNews. That is F-L-O bikes.com forward slash VeloNews. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. All right, guys. Hey, let's get to our tour analysis for this week. The Tour de France, two weeks away. That's insane. It's coming up so quick. Our 
race continues to change, our plans continue to change. We've gone through the route, analyzed all the stages. So this week and next week, we are going to analyze our top 10 contenders. And this is, you know, like like all things Tour de France and cycling, uh, it's a moving target because contenders get injured, they fall out, they look good, they look bad. So what, what I figured I would do for this is base this off of our Tour de France guide top 10 contender list, which again, we put this tour guide out. We we put it together in June, so we didn't know then what we know now. Um, but we have 10 riders, and we're going to focus on uh, riders ranked number 10 through number 6 this week. Next week, we're going to do number 5 to number 1, and we're going to talk. We're just going to analyze. We're going to sink into it. What's going on with these guys? What's the backstory around them? Do we feel like their ranking from back in June is accurate? Should they be higher or lower? And what's their fir- current form? So... Without further ado, I present to you number 10 on the Velo News 2020 Tour de France contenders list is Mr. Julian Alaphilippe from Decunic Quick Step. Gentlemen, first question Is that a proper ranking for Julian Alaphilippe? 10th, is that too high or too low, knowing what we know now? As a GC position, are you talking about? Yes. I don't think he's going for the GC. I, I really don't. I don't think he. His form is not as good as it was. Uh, he's coming into form, uh, but I don't see him going for the GCA. He hasn't built in the in the year between now uh, and last year. He could have built. A, they could they could have really recruited a tour team for him. They didn't do that. I don't think that he he thinks or they think he's ready for a three week race. I think he's going in there for uh, stage wins. Why? You got this guy fifth place at the tour wins the time trial captures the yeah. imagination of France 2019. I mean, he's like the hero of the tour. Why not why not make that a big goal for the following season? That's my big question. Well, why? Because Julian told me <laughs> we're friends. But uh secondly, uh yeah, I, I I agree with you. I mean I, I, I've told him I think, you know, I think you can be a tour rider. I don't see why I can't, especially a tour like this year where there's so many climbs that say fifteen hundred meters. The Julian of last year, you know, I think he would have been unbeatable this year's tour. Um, but uh, uh, I don't know. I just uh, right now they don't have that. I think it's more mental than anything. Uh, he just he likes to be on the attack. He likes to race aggressively. Uh, he likes to attack the sense. Uh, and I think that he or the team just doesn't think he can be like as boring as you have to be sometimes to be a tour rider. I mean, being a tour rider is very uh, methodical and, and sometimes tedious and just sort of riding tempo. And, you know, it's not as exciting as what he did. And, you know, when you see how popular that kid is for being in the, in the yellow jersey, for it didn't matter if he won or lost. He, he, what he did last year is unforgettable for the French public. Yeah, another another factor, I think, of why Alaphilippe isn't targeting this year's tour was the Olympics. Uh, he was going all in this year for the Olympics. Of course, that got postponed thanks to COVID. So that's kind of that just jacked him up and everybody else, obviously. But uh, it is a good question, though, Fred, because, you know, why isn't he doing, especially with this year's course, you know, why isn't he kind of changing the gears midstream and really going into this tour thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to uh, try to, uh, you know, do what I did last year. Because in many ways, the course is almost better suited for him this year than last year's. But I think it, more than anything, it, it was just uh, he just hit the, he just hit the form of life last year. And, uh, you know, he went longer and deeper in the tour last year than I think he even expected, obviously. And it was just, you know, the, every, the stars just aligned for him. And I think James is right. He, he You know, 
he to, to become like a grand tour rider, he had to completely change his mentality, the way he trains, the way he, you know, races. And I like the fact he's like a dashing musketeer and, you know, he's just willing to go in there and just disrupt the script rather than just follow wheels all day and, and attack in the last kilometer. Julian Alex Deep, you have to remember, he's a human being. He like drinks beer. He'll drink, you know, he likes the party. He has, he has to have fun. He loves life. He doesn't, he can't live like a monk. That's not Julian Alaphilippe. And he doesn't want to be restricted to that. And if it means he doesn't win the tour, it doesn't mean he doesn't win the tour. He also understands that cyclists at that level are also actors and the tour is their stage. And he is there as an actor, as a, as a, a player. He might not have the leading role, but he has a great supporting role and one that can really animate and, and, um, and bring a lot to the stage. And he sees the, he's, he understands the sport at that level, which I think is just tremendous. Julian Alaphilippe, actor, drum player, all-around entertainer. I enjoyed watching him last year. So at the Dauphiné, uh, let's look at his stats. He was third on stage four. He was in that breakaway. Uh, second place in the mountains classification. He didn't exactly blow the doors off the Dauphiné. He got dropped a couple times. I think... You know, he sort of falls into that bucket of typical guy trying to build racing form as we head to the Tour de France. But yeah, it really does appear that he's going to be chasing stage wins. But I have not ruled him out as a GC contender because, hey, look what happened last year. He was not a GC contender last year, and then all of a sudden he was the GC contender. Um, So maybe we keep him ranked 10th place in our tour rankings. Um, Moving on. Number nine with a bullet on the 2020 Vela News Tour de France rankings. Adam Yates, Team Mitchelton Scott, not looking great at the Dauphiné. Uh, perennial um, high anticipation, not always putting out at the Grand Tours. But then he'll like pop a result like winning the UAE Tour or looking really good at the Giro. What do we make of Adam Yates', uh, Adam Yates ranking? Number nine on the list. Is that too high, too low, or just about right? I think that's just fine. I think the UAE tour and the Tour de France are two different things altogether. Give him a ninth place. Yeah, I think I think he'd take a ninth place right now. Uh, I remember <laughs> Adam Yates, you know, really kind of had a flair there quite a few years ago. Right now, I think it was 16, 17 when he was uh, fourth or fifth best young jersey. So he's had quite a few couple of rough editions uh, of the tour and other Grand Tours. You know, while his brother obviously won the Welta a couple of years ago. So I, I think for him, more than anything. He needs to get a good, solid tour into his legs. Of course, the rumor is he's jettisoning Mitchelton Scott next year. Kind of surprised personally to see him actually at the tour, kind of uh, knowing that he, I think he's, you know, the rumor is he's going to Enios. Um, but uh, Simon Yates wants to race the Giro to try to win it. So they're sending Adam to the, uh, to the tour. I think, yeah, top 10, he'd be happy with that. Hoodie, knowing that team quite well, what do you make of how they have handled Adam's various disappointments over the years at the tour? I remember a few years back us being uh, the year that Garrett Thomas won 2018, us being, you know, on the summit and Adam Yates is part of the big group. And then he just sort of tails off the back and you know, that's it. Like GC ambitions for the tour over. And afterwards, um, Matt White, let it be known. It was like, Oh, he forgot to drink water today. And he cramped up, and you know, I got to drink water during the Tour de France, and he didn't do it today, and that's why his, you know, our team's ambitions around the Tour de France fell apart today. What do you, what sense do you get about Mitchelton Scott management and their like relationship with 
both the Yates brothers. Yeah, I think that they've obviously done a great job nurturing those guys along. I think obviously they joined that program so that they could kind of grow and develop at their own pace. And, you know, of course, they're they're British and Aussie team, you know, because they were they were some of the most uh, hyped uh, riders to come out of the UK, kind of behind uh, you know this big wave of riders that came out of the UK in the last ten years. They were kind of the youngest riders to come behind guys like. You know, well, Fern's not really British, but Wiggins and all these guys. Uh, but they obviously decided not to go to Enios. They wanted that looser feel at Arika uh, Green Edge, and it served them well. I think. I think what Yates probably needs, Adam Yates probably needs, is to change teams and to perhaps get into some different mindset. Perhaps you know, buckle down a little bit more. Or, you know, whatever he needs, or perhaps he's just tapped out, and that you know, he's he's never going to be a Grand Tour rider, and, and maybe he has just to accept that. Um, but, you know, I think every team has its own personality and the way uh, Matt White runs that team, you know, you can't criticize them for being not professional. I mean, if, if I had to race on a team, I think I'd want to be on, uh, on, the, on, on the Aussie squad for sure. Yeah, looking at their tour lineup, they have a long list announced. But, you know, you're not – well, they have Luca Mezgek as a potential sprinter, Daryl Impey, stage hunter – and potentially Esteban Chavez as another climber to target stages. So it doesn't appear like they're going all in for Adam. Looks like they may have um, other avenues to pursue if, you know, his GC ambitions take a poop early in the race. So looks like Mitchell and Scott covering their bases with Adam Yates. Okay, moving on. Number eight on the list is very exciting racer Tade Pogachar. Um Tadi Pogacar, third place at the Giro, all around amazing rider, blowing uh, blowing our eyeballs open, watching him at the Giro last year. He's making his tour debut. What do we think about Tade, ranked number eight? Uh, I like that. I think it's going to depend totally if uh, if he goes for overall or goes for stages. This is his first tour. Uh, he could just go for stages. He was uh, good, uh, but a bit limited at the Dauphiné. I don't know that he's a grand, uh, a tour overall contender right now. It really depends how they want to play it in terms of his apprenticeship. Um, and he could be eight, he could be a uh, 28th. Uh, it really depends if he wants to focus on stage wins or overall. And and I think that that will be, play- that the answers to that may largely be played out on the road. Yeah. When you look at a, a rider matching a tour profile this year and we eliminate Alaphilippe and the guy this, this, this tour really favors is a guy like Pogachar. Of course, the big difference is, you know, he's young. We don't know how deep he can go. You know, he was third last year in the Welta. Uh, but you know, everyone knows the, the Welta is not quite the same pace as the Tour de France, even though the Welta has gotten much progressively, much harder over the last 10 years. Um, the Pogachar to me, I think uh, he's, he's, he's warrants better rating than we've given him there. I'd put him uh, in top five or even better. Or like James said, he could just completely, you know, just blow up one day, kind of a, which might be a good thing for him too. I mean, he's only 21 years old. Let's not, uh, but that's the great thing about being 21. You are fearless, man. You're fearless. So he's just going to go for it till his legs blow up. And so I think he's either going to be really close to the podium or he's just going to blow up one day and try to win stages. Yeah. What I, what I like about him at this race too, is the course with its punchy climbs. I mean, that's like Pogachar country, you know, it's like there's a couple big grinder days, but really it it's some of these climbing stages that are reminiscent of what of those stages at the Welta where he did all that damage. And let's not forget that he won, he won a race called the Tour de la Mer one year after a certain Egan Bernal. 
and Bernal won it and then went on uh, two years later to win the Tour de France. So um, don't be, you know, it's not because he's 21, he can't be a tour contender. But what I'm seeing right now is not, not this year. Yeah, he was at the Dauphiné and rode aggressively. I mean, he was definitely a rider who benefited from the mass exodus of Ferris. He finished fourth place overall. Hey, that's great. Um, but, you know, he was a few steps behind like Quintana and definitely behind Roglic and some of uh, the other big favorites uh, on some of those big battles in the mountains. But he moved up when everybody uh, when everybody bailed out. Um, interesting storyline around UAE Team Emirates heading in is they have announced that Fabio Aru is actually the GC leader. What do we make of that announcement? Is that just like taking pressure off of Pogacar or what? I think so. I don't see a really being contender. I'm not sure why they keep putting him there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I see that more as a cover. All right, moving on. Number seven on our list is Tom Dumoulin uh, of Yumbo Visma. Look, Tom Dumoulin has all of the skills to be much higher on the list. Uh, he's a great time trialist, amazing climber, has won Grand Tours. I think that if you just looked at him in a vacuum, you'd say like top five material for sure. But I put him a little lower on the list because my guess is that at some point he's going to have to sacrifice himself for Pogacar or for uh, Roglic. Um, I mean, that was before Roglic crashed, and you know, it sounds like he's okay, but we you never know. Um, what do we make of Tom Dumoulin as number seven? Yeah, I think I think that he's. Um probably a little underrated on that list because I think he's a little bit kind of undercooked right now and he'll get uh, you know just right there where you want him to be I think for the tour uh, you can see that he's riding well he's uh, you know by all indications from right here very happy at Yumbo Visma and uh, you know not afraid to play the team role if it comes to that but I think the team strategy is going to be to keep as many as their guys in the GC frame for as long as possible so um, I think we'll see Dumoulin, you know, deep into this tour. I mean, if he has the legs, he'll be in podium contention, I think, deep into this tour. And if it really comes down to where Yumbo is just blowing the legs off of everybody else, uh, I think you could even see Dumoulin end up on the podium. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I, I was very impressed with him at the Dauphiné. Obviously, he was riding a, riding a shotgun, you know, a support for, for, for Roglic. Um, but he was doing it very easily. He was very strong. He was, and, and I think, you know, he knows himself. He's barely raced. I think he was like, get the race miles in. And he's the sort of guy who could midway through the tour really come into form and really, really hard to actually beat. I got to admit, it feels like a decade ago that he won the Giro. I know that it was only, was 2017. I mean, not that long ago, it was a thrilling Giro. He won it with his time trial and then being able to follow Quintana in the mountains, um, but I keep wonder what I keep wondering about some of these guys like Tom Dumoulin is like you have this big massive win and then a few years go by and like are you still able to summon not just the form but like the killer instinct and the mentality to go for it? I I wonder about that with like Simon Yates and some of the you know Fabio Aru. I don't think Fabio Aru is ever going to summon that again. But like some of these sort of one time Grand Tour winners who win you know fairly young in their career, but then, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like Tom Dumoulin is a guy I'm still waiting to see that killer instinct return from. So I would love nothing more than to see him uh, make a run at the tour. I don't know if this is the tour that necessarily 
suits his best strengths. If you had a couple flat time trials in there, you could really see this being a Tom Dumoulin tour. But I, I don't think we're not done hearing from Tom Dumoulin. I feel I like I feel like he has another Grand Tour win in him at some point. I mean, he could easily be winning the Giro. If you wanted to win a Grand Tour this year, he would have been the Giro. Oh. Um, but, uh, you know, he signed with a new team, with a new challenge, and, and, and a better chance than ever to have the support to, to, to do that. And let's not forget, if 2017 was his Giro, next year he got second in the Giro and second in the Tour. Um, so, you know, his winning form was, you know, he had a bad crash in the Giro last year, but he's not that far out. Um, I He's a little short on racing, but he's got a big motor, and he could, again, I think he could... Uh, he could be on the top step of the podium, you know. Uh, Roglic could, you know, fade in the third week. Mm-hmm. He's done it the Giro last year. You just don't know. He could crash like he did in Dauphiné. All right, number six, the last one we're going to do this week. We'll do again uh, five through number one next week. But number six that we had on our 2020 Tour de France guide contenders list is Garrett Thomas, the 2018 champion. Again, probably when he's all, you know, geared up and at his strongest, he has the skills to put him in the top Five, but I put him a little lower on the list because it was my assumption that at some point he was going to have to take a pull for Egan Bernal or, or sacrifice himself. What do you guys make of Garrett Thomas as number six on the list? He's, he has been unimpressive so far, at least in his results of these of his two races back before the tour. It seems like it's almost a replay of last year where Garrett Thomas you know, came in after winning the tour of 2018. It seemed like a little bit off his best form going into the tour last year. And I think it probably cost him uh, the victory last year because he was kind of seemed like to me, he was kind of playing catch up, trying to rush, trying to, to get back. And, uh, you know, he couldn't uh, deliver in the time trial last year. And then going into the Alps, you know, the, the way that the scenario played out, I think, you know, he had the legs to win last year, but he was just a little bit behind in his form. And I get the sense again, the same things happened again this year where, you know, for the circumstances of COVID or what have you, that he's just not on top of the same winning form that he needs to be, especially on this course that doesn't have time trialing that's going to would also favor him. So um, I think at a certain point, uh, he probably will have to cede to Bernal. But again, uh, Enios has that uh, kind of blueprint of keeping all the GC guys together as long as they possibly can. So, but I don't know, James, what did you see there? Because I, I have a hard time reading Garen Thomas right now. Right. Well, you know, I did, I chatted with him very quickly and he said, yeah, my form is not great. My numbers are good. But there's something missing. He's hoping that that he clicks in. And you know, as an older rider, that can happen. These guys can you know take a little more time to get their thing, their their their, their guns going. But the course is not perfect for him. There's no big time trials. Uh, his age is not you know on his side. And I just think that uh, fifth or sixth is is perfectly perfectly a reasonable place for him. Um, you know, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of surprises. I think there's all these climbing, all this intense climbing. Yeah, I, I don't know. If, if I was if I was Ineos right now, I would look at what they got. They're obviously overpowered by Jumbo. I would say power of numbers is not on their side. I would put all their force be, behind Bernal. Maybe a wild card for them is Sivakov. I mean, geez, was he impressive? And he is, you know. This is one of the great riders of this generation. His parents, he comes out of fi- families, you know, cycling stock, Russian, Russian, uh, uh, cyclists, both his parents. Um, he's got, got the motor, uh, and he's lost weight. He is, I, I think, you know, along with Bernal, going to be the next great, uh, tour rider for, um, for Ineos. And this might be the year they say, Hey, let's give him a chance to develop as a tour rider. 
this might be our development year. Hmm. Yeah, well, Thomas, what has always impressed me about him is his ability to fall in line when the time is needed and be the workhorse on the front. You know, I feel like we in 2018, we saw him in just a very special year where he was on the form of his life. Froome wasn't there, you know, Froome wasn't at his peak and like the clouds parted and he was able to win the Tour de France. And with riders like that or personalities like that, I sometimes wonder if they look at that moment in time and they say, you know what? I did it. I climbed the mountain. I got that big result. Like it, it happened for me. I have a, I have achieved what I set out to achieve, and I don't know if I need to climb that mountain again. I'm not saying that's the way Garen Thomas is. I don't personally know the guy, but you know, you look at someone like a Chris Froome who wins year in year out, and you just get the sense that he's a guy who, who you know, he has to, you know, he needs to win. He needs to go and, and do that, and that is what his expectations are. Where Thomas, maybe the expectation wasn't necessarily to win, but he got that win, and that's going to take him through the rest of his career. Well, I, I, I like Garen. Uh, I don't know him very well, but I like him a lot. For the same reasons I like uh, Alaphilippe. He drinks beer. Yep. Uh, you know, he, he can Confirmed have, he beer that. drinker. Confirmed yeah. beer drinker. Uh, I like that. I think we need a few more in the Peloton. Um, you know, Chris Froome I, I like also, but I don't know how much beer he drinks. So, uh, you know, you have to – every horse is different color. What can you say? But uh, he won his tour – it may have been like Bradley Wiggins, very much what you just described. Put it all together, was able to maintain that intense concentration for a year, two years, but not year in, year out. Well, that's our number 10 through number 6. Next week, we're going to be counting down number 5 to number 1. I, I believe next week is our final tour prep podcast before we get into the big show. We may do a, like a lightning pod before the tour if there's some news that breaks. But uh, Andrew Hood and James Starr, thank you guys so much for making the time. Uh, thank you for listening, listeners. Stay tuned to velnews.com for all the news and info as we head into the Tour de France, and we will catch up with you next week. Uh-huh.